In this episode, we discuss some tax strategies and bust some tax myths with Stephen Jarvis of Retirement Tax Services. Let's get started. Let's get some money. From New Money, New Problems, it's the New Money, New Problems podcast, a show for successful professionals searching for the tools they need to navigate financial opportunities and obstacles they've never seen. Negotiating compensation, purchasing your first investment property, helping your family with money, the highs and lows of entrepreneurship. New money brings new problems that require new solutions. Join us as we work through them together. I'm Brenton Harrison, and this is the New Money, New Problems podcast. Hello, my name is Brenton Harrison of New Money, New Problems, and your host for the New Money, New Problems podcast. If you are uh, someone who's connected with me on LinkedIn, a few weeks ago, I told the story of how I met this person. Our guest on today's podcast is Stephen Jarvis, CPA of Retirement Tax Services. And a few years ago on LinkedIn, when I was starting to uh, realize that it is far more than just a place where you put what you do in a picture up, uh, I started following some content creators and people who were just sharing advice about what they do. And I came across Steven's profile. He was giving great, relatable advice on taxes and being a business owner, uh, but also just about life in a way that didn't seem cheesy or canned, just very genuine and authentic. And then I also would go to this conference called FinCon, and I would see these people with just these very unique sweatsuits <laughs> or tracksuits. I don't know what you call them, but it was it was definitely something where it's like you're not going to miss that this person was there. And I put two and two together. I said, that's the guy that I saw on LinkedIn. So when I was fortunate enough to speak at FinCon this year, he uh, luckily was in the room and I got the chance to thank him for putting out great content and we connected and he is here. So Stephen, thank you for being a guest on the New Money, New Problems podcast. Brenton, I'm so excited to be here. It was so fun getting to meet you at, Pot, uh, at FinCon to learn about your approach to putting out content. Uh, it was great to see that we were already connected on LinkedIn, and I definitely seen your content come across my feed as well. I always love meeting other people who are doing great things. Tell me this: when uh, when I pointed you out in the moment, <laughs> which was not pre-planned, how did you feel when they said, "Who do you follow on LinkedIn?" I said, "Oh, he's actually back there in that tracksuit." <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be totally honest; it it blew me away. Um, I my my family likes to joke that I'm tax famous, so my wife made me a shirt that says hashtag tax famous because. I, I do. I go to a lot of conferences where people will recognize me. They'll recognize me from the podcast. In fact, in your session, somebody or the session right after you, somebody had sat down in front of me and they turned around and they said, what was your name? Your voice sounds really familiar. And so th these are still like kind of weird moments for me because when you had first, because before you, you called me out, you had just kind of generally said, oh, when it comes to LinkedIn, there's a guy I follow that I, I take a lot of great tips from. And you hadn't said the person's name. And my reaction to that was, I need to ask Brenton who that is because I need to go follow that person. And so when you said it was me, I was genuinely blown away. It was, it was a fun moment for me. Never underestimate the impact that you're having on others, even from afar. <laughs> well, tax famous is a very unique term and famous <laughs> is not a term that you typically associate with CPAs. So no. tell me a bit about your journey uh, from you know CPA to retirement tax services to mm -hmm. tax famous. 
Yeah, so I I was in college in 2008 and thought that no one was ever going to get a job again. I bought into all the doom and gloom about the economy and happened to take an accounting class and it seemed like I was good at accounting and there were lots of accounting jobs. And so my original career decision was 100% practical. I just wanted someone to employ me. And so I went and did very stereotypical CPA things for a little over a decade. And I, I knew really early on that I was not a stereotypical CPA. I mean, you mentioned the tracksuits. Um, I, for, for years, I would wear brightly colored Converse to the office that matched my brightly colored shirts. Uh, and so I, I stood out as a CPA for a really long time. And then just a few years ago, you, you probably started following me about the time I started ramping all of this up. I, I left the big firm I was working at where I was about to become a partner so that I could work more directly with individuals. So I could work more directly with financial advisors so I could have a bigger impact uh, on people. I, I had been working more and more with really large companies, which wasn't necessarily bad. I just felt really removed from the end result. And so this was an opportunity for me to dive into entrepreneurship and to dive into having a more a more direct impact to have conversations like this where like you and i get to have this conversation it's very it's very rewarding for me that you've learned from what i've done but that you're then turning around and sharing it with your audience i hear from people constantly about things they're doing because of the content that i put out and that, that encourages me to do even more of it well let's get into some of that content it's yeah. towards the end of the year when we're releasing this podcast and i'm wanting to make sure which this is a theme that we've shared with our listeners over and over the tax strategy that you use informs so many different areas of your financial life so as someone who is at that tax strategy point in in the process what are some of the things in terms of people's you know misconceptions about the value of taxes in their financial portfolio or missed opportunities just tell me a bit about how you feel taxes fit into that structure so every, every money decision that you make has a tax impact and a lot of times that gets missed so i mean just the, the way most of us are raised around taxes like taxes happen once a year in april and that's the only time you should think about them and let's just pretend they don't exist the rest of the year but everything we do has a tax impact and the more proactive we can be the more often during the year we can think about it the more likely it is we're gonna be able to move the needle on how much tax we pay over our lifetime because i i work with I've talked to thousands of people about taxes at this point, and while everyone has their own political opinions about how much someone else should pay in tax, uh, across the board, everyone personally wants to pay less in taxes, and I support that. Pay every dollar you owe, but don't tip the IRS. What people miss quite often, and we get, we get really distracted by a lot of things that are online, is that we get hung up on how do I how do I not pay any taxes ever again? How do I uh, have this grand slam and get rid of all my taxes all at once? And and that's just not the reality for most of us. That's certainly not the reality for me. I absolutely pay taxes. But what I do personally, what I do with my clients is we look for those small levers that we can pull consistently over time to minimize the amount of tax we pay over the lifetime of our wealth. Because the biggest impact that I see is with people who are making those small intentional decisions over time as opposed to looking for those grand slams. Give me an idea of the difference between a grand slam and mm -hmm. a small intentional move. What would be an example? Well, so I, what immediately comes to mind is these claims you hear of, hey, I can get your tax to zero, never, you know, invest in real estate and you'll never pay tax again, move to Puerto Rico and you only pay 4% tax. All these, these things that, that sound like, hey, I'm going to save six, seven plus figures in taxes all at once. 
And those are really appealing. And in some cases, those are those are true. It, it's possible for those things to happen, but only in a very narrow set of circumstances. And so when I think about hitting grand slams, I think about those people who come to me and say, hey, I heard, I heard on this podcast that uh, I can never pay tax again if I do X, Y, and Z. And I try to make sure that I'm not just dismissive of what they bring to me because I, I, I want to I have a conversation and explain where those things come from because they're, they're not necessarily fake. They're just, it's very specific when those things can come up. And what I focus on with the clients that I serve more often is, is what are those little, thing, little things, those, those base hits, those incremental changes? Is that actually understanding how much you can really contribute to your HSA and max funding that? And that, that you, you might think, well, hey, if I put an extra $1,000 in my HSA, great. I, maybe I save 200 bucks in taxes. Wow, Stephen, thanks for coming on the podcast and telling me how to save 200 bucks. But the thing that people forget is that you'll likely pay taxes for 40 or 50 or 60 or even 70 years of your life. And so when we start thinking about how long you'll pay taxes, all of a sudden saving a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars or $10,000 in taxes in a year, now multiplied by 40 or 50 or 60 or so, that's suddenly a lot of money. And those are the kind of things that I work with people on to show the value and the impact of doing these things consistently over time. I have said several times on this podcast, dozens, if not hundreds of times off of this podcast, that the three most disrespected and underutilized accounts in finance from a tax perspective and finance perspective, HSAs, mm -hmm. FSAs, dependent care FSAs. So I'm so glad that you backed me up <laughs> on that. We did not have this conversation ahead of time uh, because to me, it's just such a missed opportunity in many cases. Now, let me ask you this. I bring up an HSA mm -hmm. and most people's immediate response, because in, and we, we had this conversation on the podcast as well. I actually do not use an HSA mm -hmm. in my household. The, the conversation with my wife and my son's health situation, just for various reasons, we decided not to. Yeah. But I've had this conversation with people who are in perfect health. Mm -hmm. And their first thought is, well, I don't want to have to deal with all that when I go to the doctor. I'd rather mm -hmm. just know that the plan takes care of it. What is your response to that? So I personally use an HSA and we have for years. And uh, uh, in my experience, um, they're becoming more and more common. In fact, employers are pushing for them more because it reduces their cost, but that's a whole different discussion. They're more and more prevalent. A lot of times you still can make the choice and it is a bigger conversation than just, can I save on taxes? What I tell people constantly is we need to make good life decisions and then figure out the most tax efficient way to go about them. But what, what I have found in my own experience working with other people as well is that at the end of the day, uh, most years, there's not going to be a significant out-of-pocket difference by being eligible for an HSA. Typically, your premiums are a little bit lower, but your deductible is a little bit higher. And so there's these trade-offs. And so especially if you've got unique medical situations, I can totally see wanting to have the lower deductible plan, not wanting to deal with the HSA. Uh, but over the long term, I, it's, it's such a great uh, tool for so many people and it you're absolutely right it gets it gets underutilized it disrespected probably isn't an understatement because <laughs> what this uh for 2023 the contribution limit for somebody with family coverage is almost eight thousand dollars so again even if we just assume 25 percent taxes because that's easy math for me to do that's two grand a year i'm saving in taxes by putting that in my hsa right off the top and then if I invest those dollars, let those go grow tax-free over time, now those savings start compounding. 
uh, and so I, I'm going to nerd out on HSAs here for a second. The other really cool thing about an HSA is that I don't even have to make a permanent decision this year. So as I'm going through the year and I think, hey, I'd love to invest my HSA dollars. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and pay for this medical expense out of my savings account. If next year my cash flow situation is different, I can go back and submit a reimbursement from the year prior uh, because there's no there's no limitation on on when I can do that. So 20 years from now, in, in literally in 2043, I could go back and say, actually, I want you to reimburse this expense from 2023. And so there's just so much flexibility. And that's the other piece about tax planning that I think gets undervalued is it's not just about how much tax dollars I save today. It's a, how much flexibility do I create for myself in the future? We on this podcast deal with a lot of call them first and second generation high income earners, mm -hmm. people who are the first or the second in their family, not just to earn a high income. That obviously yeah. is apparent in what I said, but the first to confront many of these scenarios that we're mm -hmm. discussing. When I come across many of these couples or individuals, I pull up their tax return and I immediately go to see who prepared it. And I see that it was self-prepared. Yeah. And then we have the conversation and they say, oh, well, um, you know, I, I went and I interviewed a couple people and they said they were going to charge me a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars. So I just filed it myself. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about people and, and how would you articulate the value of, yeah, you're, you're paying this, but here's what you're getting in return as opposed to going the TurboTax route? Yeah, for a lot of people, you it's absolutely possible to prepare your own taxes. There's some great pieces of software out there. They're far from perfect. But especially if you're talking about high earning people that you work with, I mean, if they're high earners, they're probably very intelligent people. They can probably figure it out. Until life gets more complicated than they expect. For a lot of people, I look at working with a tax professional kind of like I look at my car insurance or my homeowner's insurance. These are things I pay for that most years I might not see a tangible benefit from, but boy, am I glad I have them when things get complicated in life. Uh, and and that's, that's really the baseline. A really good tax professional is going to help you do so much more. They're going to be able to provide tax planning value as well. Unfortunately, in the profession, that, that is still the exception. Most of the time, what I'm seeing is that people who are doing the most around tax planning, is, it's a collaboration between a tax professional and a financial advisor. But at the end of the day, it's not just how much are they going to charge you compared to TurboTax. That, that's like saying I'm only ever going to shop at Walmart because they're the cheapest. It's like, well, sometimes I want higher quality. I'm going to go somewhere else. And so don't, don't use H&R Block or TurboTax as your anchor point because it's a different service. And it's not just, hey, can I do it myself? Because I can also mow my own lawn. I can wash my own car. There's, there's plenty of things I could do myself that I pay someone else to do because it frees up time. It frees up mental energy. It frees up stress. It frees up all these other things. And sometimes I will meet people who say, you know what? I just... I, I enjoy doing my taxes. I like having that deep dive every year. I like being able to, to really get my hands on it. And those are people, I'm, I'm not going to get aggressive with them. I'm not going to tell them they're dumb for doing their own taxes. Some people really enjoy doing it. More power to you. I, I still do my own personal taxes. I don't do my business tax return because business tax returns are not something I do all day. And I'd rather have someone who does that all day take care of it and not take up my headspace. And so it's, it is interesting though, because <laughs> the TurboTaxes and HR blocks of the world have lots and lots of advertising dollars. And so we get constantly beat over the head with, you should get a giant refund every year. And oh, by the way, this should be three clicks and you're done and move on with life. And so a lot of us do have kind of a skewed perspective on what the tax prep process should look like. Is a giant refund the sign of a good strategy or is it cause for concern in some situations? 
I would say in most situations, a giant refund is going to cause me to pause because uh, the, the analogy I always use, we like going to Costco. And so I always say, okay, if you were to go to Costco, pick any uh, grocery store you want. And you, if you buy $100 in groceries and you give the cashier $1,000 and then they give you $900 back, you're not going to go home and brag to your friends about how Costco gave you a $900 refund. That is the exact same thing that happens when you get a refund from the IRS. You, you didn't win anything. They just gave you back the money that you paid that was too much. And pe people miss this quite often, especially for high income earners. That's all it is, is they're giving you back money that you let them hold on to all year. And so personally, I like to get a refund of less than $1,000. I don't want to have to pay at tax time, but I also don't want the IRS to hold on to my money. And so when I see big refunds, that's a conversation we're going to have. And it's always going to be based on that individual's expectations and goals. And I do have some clients who they want to hold on to every penny they can, and they would rather make a giant payment at tax time. And as long as we've talked through the potential ramifications of that, I'm fine with it, but I try to make sure people understand that getting a big refund doesn't mean that you're winning. I, I do have one or two clients who get big refunds every year and I don't push them harder on it just because before they worked with me, they had some bad experiences where they ended up with surprises at tax time. And to them, it's worth the peace of mind of paying in way too much just to know they're going to get a refund every year. So it needs to be individual as far as how you approach that, but, but don't take a giant refund as some indication that you've won. Another common uh, refrain um, that I hear is my CPA didn't do enough for me or my enrolled agent, my tax professional didn't do enough for me. I paid them all this money and mm -hmm. all they got me back was or all I saved was. And you talk to the client about their relationship with that professional throughout the year and they never met with them. They, they, mm -hmm. they, they came at the beginning of March and they gave them all the stuff that had already happened. And they said, make your, make your magic happen. And yeah. that's doing a disservice to the professional. If you have uh, someone who has shown a willingness to do that forward planning that you mentioned, what can the client do? What information can they provide that professional to make it as easy as possible for them to do their work and give value? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I will caveat this just by saying that I, I do realize there's some challenges in this tax pre preparation industry. There are a lot of firms that are unfortunately focused on just grinding out tax returns. And so I like that you included in there, if you're working with a tax professional who showed a willingness to do that, because you should absolutely look for someone who's going to have that willingness. So if we're talking about someone who, who is willing to talk with you outside of tax filing season, then a, a couple of things immediately come to mind. Um, the biggest thing is timing. You, you mentioned that if you're all you're doing is showing up in March and saying, work your magic, you're probably not going to get a good outcome. Totally agree. Uh, so really late summer, early fall is a good time to be reaching out to tax professionals or right near the end of the year, November, December to, to check in, to, to give updated pay stubs, to let them know about any changes in your life. This is a really big one and they might not always feel tax related. Uh, having a kid, moving, changing jobs, changing, uh, we, you know, I, I think it was when you were, I guess on my podcast, we talked about open enrollment and how that talks into, to, as we have these changes in our life, letting the tax professional know before the end of the year. And this is really critical because the tax filing deadline is in April, but uh, for a lot of areas of tax planning, kind of the decision point is really December 31st. Not 100% of the time, but for many things, we have to have a plan in place and be executing that plan before the end of the year. 
And so the, the better information that we can provide, the more detailed that information is. And then just on behalf of all of my tax peers, I would say the more you can do to gather that information and provide it all at once, the better outcome that you're going to have. If you send a different document every other week throughout the whole summer and then say, okay, what should I do? Uh, you're, you're probably gonna get a little bit of frustration back. Yeah, maybe maybe keep it on a, like a, a Google Drive folder or something. Maybe yeah. not Google, whatever compliant so, folder. Yeah, secure <laughs> folder you keep, have. Keep it in one uh, location at least Absolutely. Uh, to help out with it. Okay, well, this has been great. I will tell you after the break, I've asked Stephen if he's willing to either uh, burst some tax myths or <laughs> confirm uh, some tax strategies. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This is the New Money, New Problems podcast a show for successful professionals searching for the tools they need to navigate financial opportunities and obstacles they've never seen. We'll be right back. Are you wondering what new money problems you might be overlooking in your financial life? If so, we've got great news. We've crafted the New Money, New Problems Gap Finder to identify potential weaknesses in your finances in areas ranging from budgeting, investments, insurance, and even the threat your extended family's finances could pose to your household. Please head to newmoneynewproblems.com slash gapfinder to complete it today. Again, that's newmoneynewproblems.com slash gapfinder to take the assessment. You're listening to the New Money, New Problems podcast. Subscribe now at newmoneynewproblems.com. Welcome back. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking to Stephen Jarvis of Retirement Tax Services about uh, not just his story, uh, but also some things people should know when they're establishing and maintaining a quality relationship with the tax professional. Now it's time to to burst some myths. So, Stephen, we're going through some of the, the um, heavy hitting social media tax strategies, and you actually alluded to one of them. There are people out there who say that all you need to do to avoid taxes is just move to Puerto Rico. <laughs> Can you explain why they say it, what they're referencing, and when it might be relevant? Yeah, so this is one I learned about personally several years ago, and it first came across my desk as, ah, that can't possibly be true, because the general, uh, the general tagline that you'll see is, hey, buy property in Puerto Rico, you'll only ever pay 4%, which for a lot of your listeners, they've, they're probably immediately thinking, wait, 4% is way less than I pay now. That sounds fantastic. Let's buy property in Puerto Rico. And this is one of those areas where it's not that we're talking about uh, a strategy that, that's fraudulent or never applies. It's just that it, it only applies in very limited situations. So there's, there's several hoops you have to jump through to, for this to even be relevant, including there's a limit on the number of days you can spend in the mainland United States if you want this to apply. If you go a single day over, you blow up the whole strategy. There's a whole host of applications and legal fees you're going to incur every year that, you know, like 10 plus thousand dollars of fees. You have to give 10 plus thousand dollars to a Puerto Rico based charity every year. There's requirements on how long you live there, how much, how much property you own, all, how many people you employ, all these things that if, if these all magically work together and fit in your favor, this can absolutely work. In my experience, it is such a narrow group of people that's going to apply to. I, I do know somebody I actually talked to him fairly recently uh, who he actually uh, he's one of the original people who monetized a podcast. And so his entire business is virtual. He makes millions of dollars a year and he lives in Puerto Rico. It works great for him. 
But like when I look at my own situation, I'm like, wait, that means my wife can't visit her family, but a couple of times a year, like I just kind of go down the list. And for, especially for a lot of W2 employees working for another company, this is never going to be relevant. And so this is kind of one that's like, hey, that's a fun gee whiz kind of knowledge, but let's not get hung up on the, the goalpost should not be, hey, I could pay 4% tax if I move to Puerto Rico. So anything short of that isn't exciting. It's, it's so rarely applicable. And by the way, the IRS hates this. And so they meticulously watch for people abusing this and they will jump all over you the second you do one of this, this huge laundry list of things wrong. And then again, you're gonna invalidate the entire strategy. And on top of the tens of thousands of dollars you've already paid out in fees, you're gonna owe back taxes. So huge word of caution before you dive down that rabbit hole. Okay, next up, I know you've heard it. I can start a business and I can buy a G-Wagon through the business for free. What mm. are people talking about? What's real? What's not real? When is it relevant? <laughs> yeah, so this comes down primarily to a misconception about what a tax write-off really is. And I'll admit that uh, at one point in my life, I did think that something being a tax write-off meant that it was free. But I was 11 and it was because my dad owned a small business. Like uh, it was a very long time ago. It has not been as, as an adult. Um, because well, let, we'll set aside the G-Wagon for just a second. Even if you own a legitimate business and you have a legitimate business expense, something being tax deductible, uh, uh, let's, I'm, I'm sitting in front of a laptop. If I go buy a $1,000 laptop for my business, that doesn't make the laptop free. I still spent $1,000 on the laptop and now I'm gonna get a tax deduction, which means $1,000 comes out of my taxable income, which means I probably saved a couple hundred bucks in taxes. I'm still out a thousand bucks for having paid for the laptop. And we can, we can argue about what the net effect is of that, but you're still out money for having purchased it. Now we can, we can make this exponentially bigger, which for some reason it, it is always a G-Wagon, isn't it? That's, that's, that's the most common example. It's not a Tesla, it's a G-Wagon for whatever reason is, is go buy your G-Wagon and uh, save all this money. And th this gets a into a little bit more complicated tax areas with depreciation and, and bonus depreciation. But basically there's some rules that allow you to buy an asset for a business and then write the whole thing off in the first year or deduct the entire expense in the first year, which does create a tax deduction. It is going to lower your taxable income, but you still paid for a G-Wagon. So if your life dream was to buy a G-Wagon and you have the cash flow to afford the G-Wagon, absolutely buy it in a way that it's tax deductible. Super, I'm all for it. But what I tell people all the time is we've got to make good life decisions and then figure out the most tax efficient way to do it. You're never going to get ahead on uh, in life by spending tax or spending money you weren't planning to just to save on taxes. That leads into the third one. And the topic we're going to touch on, which I'd love for you to explain, is mm -hmm. ordinary and necessary or mm. reasonable business yeah. expenses. Yeah. Because you see people for this last part where they say, I can start an LLC. <laughs> There's no, you know, named purpose for the LLC. It's not generating any revenue. It's, it's, it just exists. And then I yeah. can use that LLC to write off all of these things in my personal life. Can you talk about like what it what it means to actually have a deductible business expense and, and the layers that you have to go through and jump through uh, to make sure that it's allowable? Yeah. So the first thing we need to clarify, and this gets this gets uh, misunderstood all the time, is an LLC is a legal distinction, 
not a tax distinction out of the gate. And, and creating an LLC should first and foremost be a legal decision. You're trying to protect your liability for some activity or some property or some asset, whatever it might be. And then once we have an LLC, we can make an election as to how it's taxed, but you're still going to get taxed on the income that comes through there. So that, that's a misconception I see all the time that if it's in the LLC, it's somehow gonna be tax different. Nope. Um, e even if you elect to be taxed as a partnership, which results in a separate tax filing, it still flows through to you. So then you, you touched on ordinary and necessary, which are very specific words. I know you use them very intentionally. Those are the words that the IRS uses in the tax code to, to talk about what can be deducted. And where people get in a lot of trouble is misconstruing someone not getting caught with something being allowable. And so you'll see, uh, you'll see online all the time, people talking about how, oh, I deduct all these personal expenses on my tax return, it gets approved every year, so clearly they're okay. That's not how that works. The IRS doesn't have nearly the manpower to review every single tax return in depth every single year. And so it's very possible that someone could do their tax return every year their entire life and never get questioned on it. That is not the approach I want to take. I want to take the approach of in the unlikely event that the IRS comes and asks me questions, I have good support for the decisions I made. So ordinary and necessary, uh, I mean, those are words we're familiar with, right? This, this means that whatever type of business I'm running, so if I set up my LLC to run a consulting business and I specifically consult with people who want to grow their LinkedIn profile. Okay, great. So I could go and charge someone uh, an hourly rate to tell them how to improve their LinkedIn. So if I'm doing all of that online and then I go and buy a G-Wagon, okay, how is that ordinary and necessary? Like, what am I doing with that G-Wagon that supports my business? Or, or so, so great, now I instead, let's, so we were in, we were in uh, New Orleans for FinCon. So maybe going to a conference that supports what I'm doing, that might be ordinary and necessary. But if afterwards I fly to the Bahamas and then I call you from the Bahamas, the IRS is not gonna let me deduct the travel to the, Baham the Bahamas just because I called you one time. And so, Having an LLC, having a, uh, even a legitimate business does not suddenly mean I can just deduct everything that I want to. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for clearing that up. You having the CPA behind your name gives it a <laughs> lot more strength than when I tell people you can't just open a business for no reason at all and go get a big old truck. Steven, this was phenomenal. Uh, I would love, you know, of course, follow him on LinkedIn. I told you at the beginning that that's how I came across him. But if you could tell our audience the ways that they can reach you, follow you and support you. Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I do have a consumer facing podcast, which is called the Retirement Tax Podcast or the Least Boring Tax Podcast. And what I know about podcast listeners is they listen to multiple podcasts. So add that to your list in addition to Brenton's podcast here. Um, and then retirementtaxservices.com is our website. We work extensively with financial advisors and, and find a lot of value in that collaboration. So I, I, Brenton, I know you talk about the, the value of building those relationships. And I love to see that that's something that you practically do as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Stephen. We appreciate all of our guests, but I definitely appreciate you being willing to come on and talk to our audience on the New Money, New Problems podcast. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Guys. From New Money, New Problems, this was the New Money, New Problems podcast, a show for successful professionals searching for the tools they need to navigate financial opportunities and obstacles they've never seen. 